My name is Josh, and one of the pastors here. And uh, welcome to all of you who are joining us online as well. Glad you can be with us. And uh, hey, one one word of encouragement just before we get going. Uh, if if you're interested in discovery class tonight, we'd love for you to come and uh, just come find me after the service, and uh, we will uh, get you signed up. And uh, we'll be at five o'clock. Uh, we'll go a little over two hours or so and uh, have a meal together, have some pizza, and it'll be a good time just learning about our church. And uh, if you're interested in membership, that is the first step in membership, but you don't have to become a member just to come and learn about our church. So that's open to all of you who are online as well tonight. Well, um, today we start a new series. And I, I think even before we started, it might be good just to back up a little bit because this series is really part of uh, an overall focus for the entire fall this year. Uh, where, uh, if you remember, I, I came in August and just talked about the fact that so much has changed in our world over the last 18 months, hasn't it? So much has changed. Um, and one thing that just seems to be clear is, and it hasn't changed a whole lot since August, people are tired, uh, people are fatigued and a little bit grumpy sometimes, you notice that? Um, highly charged in their opinions, and whether it's masks or COVID or politics or football teams, it doesn't matter. Everything is just like, like way amped up these days, isn't it? People are divided. Uh, many are contentious. Many are struggling with uh, mental illness and anxiety in record numbers. Uh, complaint-filled. Do you get tired of the complaint-filled nature of our, of our culture lately? Do, do you get tired of the complaint-filled nature of your own heart at times? Yeah. People seem to be less committed, more self-focused. We see it in our culture and social media and the church. We see it everywhere. Uh, it's just, we're tired. Um, and you know, uh, what we talked about is that uh, maybe now more than ever before, people need to be refreshed. They, they need Jesus. Maybe you need to be refreshed. And so we just decided, starting in August this fall, we're just gonna turn our eyes off ourselves and do whatever we can to get our eyes on Jesus. So if you remember, if you were with us uh, back in August, that uh, we, we looked at Colossians and the fact that it is all about Jesus. How the, the short passage in Colossians tells us that Jesus is the creator and sustainer and ruler of the universe. He holds everything together, including our very lives. And uh, that apart from him, Man, we're wasting our time because it is all about him. And, and then we took the last five weeks and uh, we've been in an evangelism series called PEARL, which is an acronym for just a way we can go about sharing our faith with those we know and love who are far from God because God's not far from them. And, and we can pray for them. We can, the E is eat with them, ask them questions, get to know them as a friend. Then, then when they start asking questions back to us, reveal God's story and our own story of faith and then and love them throughout the whole process. And we recognize that that's more than just a five-week process, right? Like we didn't just get through the series and oh, now we're done with that, onto something new. No, that, that's a lifestyle that by God's grace we can develop. And we'll be coming back to Pearl uh, over the years uh, as time goes on and you'll hear us reference that regularly. Um, 
But then now, uh, coming out of that, we're gonna take the rest of 2021 and uh, we're gonna settle in looking at the heart of Jesus, at his very heart. Who is he deep down when you peel everything else away? What's his his central uh, motivation and, and animating core of his life. You know, uh, the writer of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews 1 uh, to, uh, to consider Jesus. And one, one paraphrase I like says, think a lot about Jesus. And so that's what we're gonna do. We're gonna think a lot about his heart. And uh, in uh, 2020, uh, during the uh, shutdown and all that sort of stuff, uh, a book came out called Gentle and Lowly that I got to read. Um, it's, it's one of really just the most impactful books I've read personally uh, in, in at least 10 plus years, just in terms of, of my own heart and recognizing God's heart for me and his heart for you. And uh, this series, the, the insights of this series are based in large part uh, on the insights of this book of a guy named Dane Ortland. And uh, a cool thing is, as we get closer uh, to Christmas, uh, somebody nationwide uh, gave an incredible gift to Crossway Publishers, and they've provided these uh, for free to churches all across the U.S. So uh, we have about 200 of these to give away to you as a Christmas gift uh, for each household as we get closer to Christmas. And uh, we're going to give that to you, uh, not today, but as we get a little closer, and uh, you'll get a book that you can read over the holidays, uh, really piggybacking off everything we're going to be talking about. But just as we begin, uh, before I pray, let me read to you from the intro of this book, because it really kind of gives an intro to the series too. Here's Here's what Ortland writes. He says, this book is written for the discouraged, the frustrated, the weary, the disenchanted, the cynical, the empty, those running on fumes, those whose Christian lives feel like constantly running up a descending escalator. Do you ever, ever feel like that in life? Like you're just running up the escalator that's going down? Those of us who find ourselves thinking, how could I mess up that bad again? It's for that increasing suspicion that God's patience with us is wearing thin. For, for those of us who know God loves us, but suspect we've deeply disappointed him who've told others about the love of Christ, yet we wonder if, as for us, he harbors some mild resentment, who wonder if we've shipwrecked our lives beyond what can be repaired, who are convinced that we've permanently diminished our usefulness to the Lord, who've been swept off our feet by perplexing pain and are wondering how we can keep living under such numbing darkness, who look at our lives and know how to interpret the data only by concluding, that God is fundamentally parsimonious. It's written, in other words, for normal Christians. In short, it's for sinners and sufferers. And how does Jesus feel about them? Friends, uh, this series, uh, based in large part off of insights from this book, is for those of us who are normal Christians who are sinners and sufferers who find ourselves weighed down and burdened with life. And I really believe that it'll be like a drink of cold water to your heart just to see Jesus' heart for you and to rest in that. So uh, with that, 
Uh, I'm gonna pray. Actually, before I do that, I wanna point out one other thing. On your handout you got today, uh, have you noticed on the back of our handouts, there's always uh, questions for your life group? And some people use those in their life groups. Others will use those just to, for personal study to kind of take what we talk about on Sunday morning and pull it out into the week. But with this series in particular, we've actually purchased a video series uh, that's available to anyone in our church. And uh, there's a QR code there. And if you don't know how to use that, open your phone or tablet and point your camera at it. And a little link will pop up and you can tap it. And it'll go to a you know, four or five minute video that just kind of piggybacks off some of the stuff that we're talking about today and on the study that's on the paper there. So I'd encourage you to take advantage of that and just wanted to point that out to you. But with that, let me pray. And then uh, we're, gonna, we're gonna dive in here. Let's pray. Father, thank you for Jesus. Thank you that uh, he, he is gentle, that he's kind, that he's uh, loving and compassionate at his core toward me. Even when, when Jesus, so many times I've rebelled and turned from you, your love really is, as we sang this morning, amazing toward us. So uh, Father, I pray that by your spirit, you'd speak to and through me as, uh, as we look at your word this morning and Jesus, as we look at your heart. I pray also that you'd be at work uh, in, in each of our lives to, uh, to know your great love and compassion and care for us, your friendship toward us, that we'd come to you as you call. Father, thank you for Jesus. We pray all this through him. Amen. So I mentioned we're going to be talking about Jesus' heart, his heart for sinners and sufferers. So, so let's get at it. Let's talk about Jesus' heart. You know, um, I, I think it's important just as we even launch this conversation to recognize that the Bible, when it speaks about the heart, sometimes, well, let's back up. When, when we talk about the heart, somebody's heart, a lot of times we tend to think about emotion, don't we? And, uh, you know, it's something that, that reflects the nature of how we feel deeply internally. And that's part of it. Sometimes we think about the heart in terms of affection. You know, I've got a heart for this, or uh, I'm attracted to this. And that's true. But when, when the Bible speaks of the heart, it's talking about something more than just our emotions that say uh, what we're feeling. And it's more than just our affections of what we're attracted to it's actually referring to the very core of who we are. The deepest reality of who we are. Theologically, that's our, our ontology, if you want a big word to impress your friends with. It just means uh, what's real, most real about us, our very being. That's the heart. I mean, it's, it's why, uh, well, uh, Ortland calls it the core or the central animating center of who Jesus is when we're talking about his heart. And when you think of the heart as the center of our being, the, the, the thing that animates how we live our life and, and motivates all that we do, it makes a lot of sense why uh, Solomon would write this, to keep your heart with all vigilance, to keep it, to guard it, to protect it. Why? Because from it flow the springs of life. If you're not guarding your heart, you're not protecting it, then other stuff is gonna start to leak out that you're feeding your heart with. It's our core. It's the center, the animating center of our being. And so Solomon says, guard it, protect it. It'll animate your life. 
Jesus compared it to a tree that bears fruit. You know, uh, he, he said that every tree is known by its fruit. The fruit reveals the core reality, the core ontology, so to speak, of the tree, its very being. And Jesus said it's the same with us, right? It's the same with us. Here's, here's what he says actually in Luke 6. He says, the good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good. It flows from who we truly are deep down, the animating center of who we are. And then he goes on and he says, and the evil person out of the evil treasure produces, his evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. See, our heart, when the Bible talks about the heart, it's, I, I really like the way he describes that, the animating center of who we are. It, it's, what, it's what we live out. It, it motivates all that we do. Another example we read in 1 Samuel that God doesn't look just at our actions, though, because sometimes we can fake it, right? You notice that? You ever done that? You can kind of try to live a certain way to kind of like hanging fruit on the tree to pretend it's an apple tree when it's not. But eventually it rots and falls down. And, and the reality is God doesn't look then just at our actions. He actually looks past our actions to our very core, to our heart. In the Old Testament, one example, there's a guy named Samuel. And uh, God tells Samuel to go to the house of this man named Jesse to pick out the next king of Israel. He's gonna anoint him. And he says, uh, Samuel, go, one of Jesse's sons, I'll, I'll tell you when you get there, he's the next king. And so Samuel shows up at Jesse's house and Jesse lines up all his sons and they're, they're big and rugged and good looking guys. And he's thinking, oh, one of these for sure. And each time God's like, nope, not him, not him, not him. And Samuel's like, well, do you have anybody else? And he's like, well, yeah, we got David, but he's out in the field with the sheep. Go get him, we're not doing, we're not doing anything until he gets here. And what happened is that God spoke to Samuel and he told him, he said, hey, don't look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I, I've rejected him for the Lord sees, not as man sees. What do we see? We see the outward, right? But what does God see? The Lord looks on the heart, the, the core of who we truly are. That's what God sees, because the heart is who we truly are. When, when everything else gets stripped away. That's why uh, in, in Proverbs 27, we read, as in water, face reflects face, so the heart of a man reflects the man. Your heart shows who you truly are when everything else gets peeled back. You know, like uh, the Terminator, you pull him back and what do you get? Machine. <laughs> well, uh, when God pulls us back, he gets to our heart and that's what he sees. That's what he sees. So our question really throughout this series then is who is Jesus at his core? When you peel back everything, who is he? What's the animating center of everything else that he is? But you know, before answering that question, it's probably good for us just to be reminded and to think through who we are at our core. Who are we at our core? I mean, every person hearing me right now, including the guy speaking, we've, we've rebelled against God. We, we've sinned against him. As did our parents and our 
parents' parents and their parents before them, all the way back to Adam and Eve. And, and so because of that, over time, everyone has inherited a sinful, rebellious core. A heart that's sinful. The Bible calls this our sinful nature. By nature, uh, we're sinful. We've inherited a sinful heart all the way back to our ancestor, Adam. And that sinful heart manifests itself how? In sin and in rebellion. We've all sinned and we fall short of God's glory. It's, it's our natural inclination to sin. And you know, we don't, do you notice you don't have to be taught how to sin? It just flows from our heart. If you don't believe me, just have kids. Right? I mean, Hannah and I never taught Charlie to say no or to reject us at times or, or to lie. One of his favorites, you know, Charlie, did you do that? I don't, I don't remember. Yeah, you remember. We didn't teach him that. Why, why does that happen? Because we have, at our core, we inherit this sinful nature, sinful heart. But Jesus says, you know what he says in Matthew 5? He says, the pure in heart will see God. The pure in heart. Because God is perfect and pure. He's perfect in love and holiness and justice. The list could go on and on. And because of this, he rightly requires then, uh, out of that purity, out of that holiness, recompense for sin, for our sin against him. He's pure in heart at the core of his being. But I'm not. How about you? Not by default, at least. So if I hope to see God and to be with him, something's got to happen to Josh. My heart has to be changed. See, the good news of the gospel and the good news of this series is just this, that while I was still a sinner and while you were as well, Jesus came near. <laughs> and he died my death. He took my wrath, uh, God's wrath for my sin upon himself on the cross. Why? To give me that new heart. And it was something God promised long ago through the prophet Ezekiel. I'll give you a new heart. I'll put a new spirit in you. I'll take out your stony, stubborn heart, your, your sinful heart, and I'll give you a tender and responsive one. That's the good news of the gospel. And so what happens when I become a Christian, Jesus says it's such a radical change. It's like you're, you're born again. You're born again spiritually. And you get a brand new start, a brand new heart, a brand new life eternal life. And when I turn from my sin and I turn to Jesus, he makes me new. He gives me a new heart. And so now my, my identity is brand new. My, to go back to our theological term, my ontology has been changed. I'm no longer a sinner, but I'm a saint. I'm a saint who still sins at times, but that's not the core of who I am, is it? And I'm growing more and more into the likeness of Jesus. But uh, with that in mind, who is Jesus at his core? Who is he at his core? That's really what we want to talk about. Well, I wonder, how would you answer that question? If I said, uh, describe the very heart of Jesus, how would you describe him? What underlies everything for him? How would you describe it? You know, it, it might vary depending on how you grew up in the church you grew up, in the environment you grew up in. 
For instance, some of us might uh, reply to that after thinking for a bit, and you say, you know, the, the instinctive nature uh, that I have toward Jesus' heart would be that he's strict and stern and demanding in heart. That's, that's how I kind of instinctively view Christ. Or you might say that, uh, you know, I, I view him as, as just high and exalted and holy and lifted up and just kind of separate and other than me, dignified, righteous in heart. Others might say, well, no, he's, he's joyful and he's generous in heart. Well, how about if we look at how Jesus describes his heart? Charles Spurgeon uh, pointed out that in the 89 chapters that make up the gospels, the four gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, there's one verse where Jesus, in his own words, speaks of his heart. And it's in Matthew chapter 11. So uh, let's, let's turn there together and read from Matthew chapter 11. Jesus says this. <clears throat> he says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you'll find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Do you see it? I am gentle and lowly in heart. At, at his core, that's who Jesus is. He's, his heart is gentle and lowly. Well, let's unpack this a little bit and, and what this means exactly, that he's gentle and lowly, because if we don't, we might think, oh, that just means he's, he's just kind of a wuss and he's just kind of weak. And no, that's not the case at all. See, gentle, that word uh, shows up in the New Testament. Actually, uh, our English Bibles are a translation of the original, which was written in Greek. And so the Greek word that lies underneath that English word for gentle in our Bibles shows up four times total in the New Testament, this place and three others. Uh, one other place is in Matthew 5, 5, where Jesus says the meek will inherit the earth. So it's translated as meek. In Matthew 21, uh, verse 5, quoting from Zechariah 9, uh, we read about Jesus coming to us, the king coming, and it says that he's, he'll be riding a donkey, humble and mounted on a donkey. So it's translated meek, sometimes it's translated humble. And then one other time it's translated gentle again in 1 Peter 3, 4. Peter is in encouraging wives to, uh, to, to more than anything else nurture the hidden person of their heart. <laughs> but they are deep down with the imperishable beauty of a gentle, there's the word, and quiet spirit. Meek, humble, gentle. In, in other words, Jesus isn't trigger happy He's not harsh, he's not reactionary, he's not easily exasperated. He's gentle. In fact, it's just the opposite. He's the most understanding person in the universe for you to go to. The most approachable person in the world is Jesus Christ. And the posture most natural to him isn't his finger pointed at you, it's his arms open toward you. That's his heart. That's who he is. He's, he's gentle, meek, humble, and he's accessible. He's, dare I say, down to earth. 
because he says, I'm gentle and lowly in heart. The meaning of that word lowly, it kind of overlaps with being gentle. Uh, the word behind lowly is, is a lot of times translated as humble in the New Testament. But do you know, in the New Testament, most of the time when we read humble, there, there's sometimes it talks about virtue, right? God opposes the proud, James 4, 6, but gives grace to the humble. But, but more often than not, in the New Testament, the word humble refers to our estate, kind of our, our disposition, where we are, our circumstances, uh, maybe being thrust down by the circumstances of life. So for example, in Mary's song, when she's pregnant with Jesus, the word is used to speak of the way God exalts those like her who are of humble estate. Or Paul talks about it in Romans 12 that we're uh, not to be haughty, but to associate with the lowly. And so it's, it's referring to those of a, who are socially unimpressive, not the life of the party, but the ones who, when they show up at the party, the host cringes a little bit. That's lowly and humble. Here's what Jesus is saying. He's accessible. He's down to earth. He, he put on flesh and dwelt among us, John writes. And, and here's what's crazy. We spent time in August looking at, at Colossians and seeing all of Jesus' glory, his preeminence, his holiness, his unique otherness, his omnipotent, omniscient power. Uh, Jesus, the one who's described and we'll read a little bit later in Revelation is one with eyes of fire and voice like thunder in, in, in unapproachable glory and might. When you peel it all back, do you know what animates all of that? A gentle and lowly heart. And he's the most approachable, accessible, down-to-earth person in the universe. which to me just makes all of his glory that much greater. I was talking with somebody after the first service and they said, you know, Josh, even though I feel like when I see Jesus, I'm just gonna be face down on my face. And you might. When the apostle John sees Jesus in Revelation in that glory, what does he do? He falls on his face and it says, as if I was dead. <laughs> like I just, and I, I wanted to be dead essentially. But what does Jesus do? He reaches down and he says, fear not. Fear not, because he's gentle and he's lowly and he loves us. Friend, he loves you. He loves you. No human in history has ever been more approachable than Jesus Christ. There's no prerequisites to come to him. There's no hoops to jump through, no cleaning up to do beforehand. You don't have to call and dial the right extension and wait on hold to talk to him. You just... Come to him. You're invited to come just as you are. In fact, I think you could make the argument from this passage. He says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, that it's, it's your very burden that qualifies you to come. <laughs> the thing that you would think would keep me from being able to come is the thing that, he, that enables you to come and why you should come. Jesus' natural instinct is to draw near us in, in our fallen state and in our sin. He, he, he loves us. 
his heart. Come to me, he says, all who labor and are heavy laden. Let's unpack this a little bit. First off, it says all who labor. Guess who that includes? All, pretty simple. And then who, who labor? Labor, when Jesus is saying this, he probably has people hearing him who are laboring under religion. You know, trying hard to earn favor from God or, I wonder, do you labor? Do you labor trying to, maybe, maybe it is trying to earn God's favor. Maybe it's trying to earn favor socially or uh, in your career or with a boss, or, or maybe it's in a dysfunctional family where there's somebody who just demands certain things of you and you find yourself always laboring, never able to please them. Do you find yourself laboring? Jesus says, come, come to me. Come to me, he says. Uh, those who are heavy laden, do you find yourself heavy laden? Uh, to be heavy laden means to have a burden placed on you. Maybe it's just totally outside of your control, but the burden and weight of life, whether it's just the reality and circumstances of life or it's a burden that somebody else has placed on you or a burden you sense even from someone and you just feel constantly pushed down. It reminds me of uh, these carts uh, that I've seen in India. If you ever get to come to India, you'll see a lot of these. This guy uh, moving the ox along with, in this case, a bunch of sugar cane mounted up on the cart. The only, the only agenda there is to see how much we can get on the cart before it breaks. <laughs> or, or how about this? I, I like this picture too, this truck. These guys. Now that's a truck that's heavy laden. It's weighed down with a burden. I, I wonder though, does that, does that image maybe reflect your heart a little bit today? We feel like, man, that's, that's how I feel at times. If so, Jesus says, come to me, come to me and I'll give you rest. He says, come to me, not know a bunch of facts about me, but it's, it's a personal invitation to draw near to Jesus, to go to him. There's no prerequisites. And then he says, and I will give you rest. And, and notice what it says. I'll let you earn some rest, you know, for all your troubles. No, he says, I'll give it to you. It's a gift. You cannot earn it. <laughs> there's no prerequisites to come and there's no prerequisites, pre that's a hard word for me today, prerequisites for you to receive his rest. None, it's a gift. I don't know, do you ever sometimes buy into the lie or feel like, well, if I just keep working harder. If I keep trying harder, you know, I, I just got to buckle down and maybe if I come about it this way, then I can uh, please that person or this taskmaster. And then eventually I'll, I'll kind of get to here. And then eventually I'll finally have some rest from all of it. Do you ever feel that way? But then what happens when you finally get there? You find out the bar isn't here, it's here. And when you get here, the bar isn't here, it's here. And, and it's unattainable. You cannot do it. You can't. And that's the age-old lie. It's never enough. Friend, if you're laboring, if you're heavy laden, Jesus says, not try harder, 
He says, come to me. Come to me. Do you long for rest? I do. Well, one of the observations Ortland makes here that I think is, is pretty profound. He says, Jesus Christ's desire that you find rest, that you come in from out of the storm, outstrips even your own desire for those things. It flows from his heart. He says, come to me. His desire for your rest is greater than your own. And friends, Jesus gives rest. He's gentle, he's lowly in heart. That's his default disposition toward you if you would come to him. See, because uh, gentle and lowly isn't who he is to everyone. It's who he is to those who respond and come to him. I mean, in fact, if you back up a little earlier from these verses in chapter 11, in fact, about verse 21, you'll, you'll read Jesus saying, woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida. And he goes on and says, it, it, woe to you. It's gonna be worse for you on the day of judgment than it, than it will be for Sodom and Gomorrah. Why? Because they've rejected his gentle and lowly heart and they haven't come to him. See, it's Jesus' gentleness and his kindness, Paul tells us, that's meant to lead us eventually to repentance, to turn to him and go to him. And so to reject that is is really the worst thing we could ever, the worst crime we could ever commit. To reject the gentle and lowly heart of Almighty God. But if you'd come to him, as he says, if you'd take his yoke upon you, He's gentle and lowly in heart. Take on his yoke. We've, we've read this a few times now uh, from Matthew 11. We've heard Jesus say, talk about his yoke. I, I've said it a few times. I wonder, maybe you're like me though, where uh, at least five-year-old me, when I was a little, little boy, I didn't know what a yoke was. I grew up on a farm, but we didn't have oxen that were yoked up to something. I, I, when I heard yoke, you know what I thought of? I thought of an egg. And I thought of that little part of the center of a hard-boiled egg that I usually threw out. I hated that part. But then I realized as I grew a little older, a little wiser, no, yoke here is not talking about an egg. It's talking about, well, let me show you a picture. It's a bar across the shoulder of some oxen and it ties them, it binds them together and it binds them to a burden. It binds them to a burden to pull and to carry. A cart, maybe, or an implement for the field. Um, metaphorically, throughout the Old Testament, it's often used as a burden of slaves. It's a, a, a yoke is tied to a burden. It's laid upon you. It's something you must pull, that you must carry. Jesus says, if you're heavy laden, he says, take my yoke. Wait a second, Jesus, I'm, I've already got all this stuff that I'm trying to carry. You're gonna throw another thing on me? What are you talking about? There's a little bit of irony here as he says this. But he says, no, take on my yoke and learn from me. The only burden Jesus lays on us is to learn from him. He's calling you to tie yourself to him. And when you're tied to him, he's always with you. And he helps you pull the burden that you carry and that you, you bear, doesn't he? 
He's calling you to tie yourself to him, to be yoked to him. To take on his yoke then is to be bound. Bound to him, learn from him. You might be like, oh, but yeah, but I've, I've read some of the Bible and some of those rules, man, that's a lot of work. I don't know. Well, here's the good news. Jesus says that my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And then his uh, best friend, John, writes this. Uh, For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments. So there's some things to do. There's a burden to pull that we're bound to. But notice his commandments are not burdensome. They're easy. They're light. Why? Because Jesus is with us in it. He's accomplished it already. And so really the yoke he gives us isn't a yoke, but it's a, it's a non-yoke. <laughs> it's his kindness. See, when, it says my, when he says my burden is easy, that word is actually translated kind or kindness many times throughout scripture. And, and so to think, uh, I don't, I don't want to take on a yoke. It's, it's akin to the guy who's drowning and, and going down fast, who you throw a life preserver to. And he says, what are you throwing that at me for? Can't you see I can't swim the way it is? I can't handle holding on to that too. Well, that's foolishness, isn't it? Because the life preserver, if he'd grab onto that, that would buoy him up and he'd have life. That's Jesus' yoke. We might think, I don't know that I can do that. That's too much more. I can't take that too. No, no, his burden's easy and it's light. His commands aren't burdensome. And it actually, it's like like helium that just lifts us up and gives us life. His burdens are, are light. Jesus has come to me. In fact, scripture ends with the spirit and the bride saying, come, come. To the one who's thirsty, come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. Gift. Come to me, he says. See, friends, Jesus is gentle and lowly and he longs for you and I to come to him. But, you know, instinctively, we've already kind of said this, but let's go around the bush one more time. Instinctively, we don't always think of him that way, do we? If we're honest. Uh, Ortland writes this. He says, we project onto Jesus our skewed instincts about how the world works. Human nature dictates that the wealthier a person, the more they tend to look down, <coughs> excuse me, on the poor. The more beautiful a person the more they're put off by the ugly. And without realizing what we're doing, we quietly assume that one, speaking of Jesus, who is so high and exalted, has corresponding difficulty drawing near to the despicable and unclean. Uh, Sure, Jesus comes to us, we agree, but he holds his nose. This risen Christ, after all, is the one whom God has highly exalted at whose name every knee will one day bow in submission. This is the one whose eyes are like a flame of fire, whose voice is like the roar of many waters, who has a sharp two-edged sword coming from his mouth and whose face is like the sun shining at full strength. In other words, this is one so unspeakably brilliant that his resplendence cannot adequately be captured with words, so ineffably magnificent that all language dies before his splendor. This is the one whose deepest heart, more than anything else, is gentle and lowly. Isn't that good news? It's gentle and lowly. And and friends, um, 
It's gentle and lowly toward you. Toward you. And he proves it over and over again in his life that he's gentle and lowly. See, you might look at some of this and say, well, Josh, aren't we just, we're, we're kind of cherry picking, right? I mean, we're just, we're taking that one aspect of who Jesus is and we're ignoring these other things about who he is. But that, that would be true. And, and Ortland points that out too. That, that would be true if it wasn't for the fact that he lives it out over and over and over. And we see it proved throughout his life that, that what's, what we read in Matthew eleven twenty nine 29 of his gentle and lowly heart shows up on every other page in the gospels of how he goes about life and lives. Uh, for example, uh, let me just show you some examples of, of how what he is, what Jesus is, he does. He lives it out. In Matthew 8, when the leopard says, Lord, if you will, if it's your deepest desire, you can make me clean. And what does Jesus do? If his heart is stern and strict and demanding, he'd be like, well, then... Um, cross all the T's, dot the I's, and come back to me. No, he says, actually, I will. Be clean. It flows from his heart. It's his gentle heart toward the man. It's the word there for wish or desire. It's, it's, he's, he's asking about Jesus' heart. Uh, in Matthew 9, when a group of men bring their paralyzed friend to Jesus, Jesus can't even wait for them to ask what they want, to ask him what they want of him. Before they even speak, he, he says, when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. He didn't even wait for them to ask. He just immediately in his compassionate heart, his gentleness goes toward them. He's traveling from town to town and Matthew 9 as well, a little later, he sees the crowds, he has compassion for them because they're harassed and they're helpless. So he teaches them, he heals their diseases and we see his compassion over and over and over and over in the Gospels. Again and again, he's compassionate. It drives him to heal the sick. It drives him to feed the hungry, to teach crowds, to, to wipe away tears of the bereaved. And the, the, the word there for compassion in all these texts uh, refers to, and some old translations will say that he, he felt it and it was from his bowels. <laughs> it moved his bowels. I mean, we wouldn't say it that way, would we? <laughs> but it means his guts. Like deep down, that's who he is. When you strip everything else away. I mentioned the Terminator. You strip all the flesh away and you see machine or the Stepford wives. But when you strip everything away from Jesus, what do you see? You see a gentle and lowly and compassionate and grace and mercy and love-filled heart toward you. That's incredible. And his actions over and over again prove and reflect what he most deeply is, who he most deeply is. It's undeniable. And because of that, then we can we can't avoid the conclusion that the very fallenness that Jesus came to undo is what's most irresistibly attractive to him. The thing he came to undo in our lives is what he's drawn towards. He loves us so much. He says, who the Father's given to me, I hold in my hand, and no one can snatch them out. If Jesus has you, he has you, and he continues to draw near no matter what you do. 
Now, hopefully that motivates your life, and it should, toward living out of that new heart, right? And your sin decreasing and your love for him increasing. But he is near to you. He's given you his spirit as a guarantee. And you might be thinking, okay, Josh, well, that was Jesus walking the earth. He always drew near people here as we wrap up. He always drew near. But, but what about today? Isn't he, He's ascended, he's, he's high, he's lifted up, he's seated at the right hand of the Father. I mean, he is just kind of other and distant today, isn't he? I mean, it'd be different if he could walk through the door and, and I could go grab lunch with him and then maybe I'd see, no. He's the same today, friend. His heart toward you is the same as we see revealed on the pages of the Gospels. The writer of Hebrews tells us that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. In other words, he's unchanging. His gentle heart that's revealed in the Gospels is his gentle and lowly heart that exists toward you and I today and that will exist toward you and I for all eternity. And it's from that heart that all of his majesty, all of his holiness, all of his power and supremacy and preeminence radiates from that heart. And he longs for you to come to him. Come to me, he says. All of you who labor and are heavy laden, I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me. He says to you right now, I'm gentle, I'm lowly in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls. He says to you and I, he says, my yoke is easy, friend. My burden's light. Come to me. Let me pray.